Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm Charles Bromesco. And I'm Campbell A. Campbell. And today we'll be talking about Nia DaCosta's B-movie reboot Candyman, Sean Durkin's transatlantic family drama The Nest, and in Film Club, we're flashing back to 2011 for Sean Durkin's acclaimed debut, Martha Marcy May Marlene. Stay tuned too for chats on The Nest and Martha Marcy May Marlene with special guests Sean Durkin and Elizabeth Olsen. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome back, listeners, and welcome back, Charles and Camberley. Charles, it's always fun having you on the podcast, so we can hear about what's going on on the other side of the pond. Anything exciting happening in the states right now? Uh, things are buzzing, you know. Everyone, I think, in North America is kind of prepping for uh, our best grasp at a normal festival season. Uh, with Toronto coming up, where they've got you know a handful of pretty big things coming to North America for the first time, and then beyond that, uh, New York Film Festival, which is really. Uh, the Festival of Festivals, which is usually what Toronto calls themselves. But this year, that's more like New York, because they're really bringing together all of the big stuff from Berlin and Cannes and Venice uh, in in physical screenings, which is uh, going to be tough for some of the people in Toronto. And so a lot of the stuff has been pre-screened now. I saw Bergman Island, the new film from Mia Hansen Love, just yesterday, uh, which I just loved. Wonderful film. Can't wait to write about it, I think, more extensively, because uh, it is getting theatrical release later this year in the states so looking forward to that hmm. Campbell, how are you doing has your life been changed by the neon genesis evangelion box set that was announced just last week uh i immediately pressed purchase i am nothing if not predictable i guess <laughs> i was gonna ask charles like um you said big things at the new york film festival does that mean that they got clifford the big red dog and now tiff don't Clifford, Clifford the Big Red Dog is too big for any one film festival. I would say perhaps even too big for the silver screen itself. Clifford, <laughs> Clifford the Big Red Dog should be... Um, I love those immersive theatrical things that I saw a lot of adverts for when I was in London, where they were like, come immerse yourself in the Wolf of Wall Street. Is this making any sense to anyone? Yeah. Yeah, that's a thing? I guess they so. Should, they, yeah, I, I, I don't know what I'm referring to, but that is really the only way that I can conceive of experiencing the sum total of Clifford the Big Red Dog. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll hear more about Clifford the Big Red Dog uh, later on in the year when we finally get to see it. But for now, we've got a lot to get through this week. Two interviews, but first we're going to talk about a very buzzy title indeed, Candyman. Candyman. 
Nia da Costa directs this contemporary incarnation of the cult classic in a reboot produced by Jordan Peele that revisits the housing projects of Chicago's Cabrini Green neighbourhood which were terrorised by a word-of-mouth ghost story about a supernatural killer with a hook for a hand, easily summoned by those daring to repeat his name five times into a mirror. So, Camberley, I made a huge mistake with this movie. I thought this was a reboot. It turns out it's one of those reboot sequel jobs, sort of like um, I go all the way back to Superman Returns, which was a sequel to Superman 2, forgetting Superman 3 and 4 ever existed. I suppose the most recent example is Halloween, that reboot sequel from a couple of years ago. Um, what is this? Is it a remake, a reboot, a sequel? Uh, let, let us know what they should, how they should prepare themselves for this. It's kind of all of the above. I think um, Halloween is a good reference point for audiences because it's one of those things where it pretends that the other sequels don't exist and the first one is the holy text to which it must continue, the New Testament to Andy Mann's Old Testament or something. Um, (laughs) um, So this one has characters from the original returning. Um, There's sort of family relationships between new characters and old ones and there's a lot about uh this the first film is basically turned into an urban legend itself in the context of this new one so it is aiming to reward um people who are familiar with the old one while introducing new people to mm-hmm. what the candy man is or maybe candy men <laughs> in- <laughs> yeah there's an interesting sort of mixture here it's telling its own story with this group of characters like hipster artists who've moved into the gentrified neighborhood which was cabrini green in the in the original film but then also the the law of the candy man has turned into this urban legend and the film has to address that at some point is that a mixture that pays off here camberley um i somewhat liked the idea that they're going for in the opening where um the original story has become muddled like through you know, there's, it's been through this kind of tradition of oral storytelling like the original Urban Legend did in the first one and think details have changed. So um, Helen from the first one is the monster as opposed to the Candyman itself. And they're like, oh, this white woman went crazy on the pro- in the projects and started killing people, uh, which I thought was really interesting. And then um, the conversation about it devolves into people having a round table about the meaning of the original Candyman and then just any of the interesting stuff for me is kind of just thrown out the window by that point and then it just continues hammering that home throughout the entire thing like it's a bit of a trend with this where it introduces some interesting new twists on the i guess the lore of um Candyman before i don't know stomping any subtext out of existence <laughs> charles what did you make of all that yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think the part that Campbell is referring to, which is, I think, maybe the most interesting part is uh, there are all these uh, very involved pseudo-academic chats between the artist character uh, played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II and uh, a very haughty sort of uh, Caucasian uh, art critic who comes to his shows and they sort of exchange, <laughs> you know, postgraduate language about generational cycles of violence, uh, which is fascinating, both because it seems like Nia DaCosta, w- the director, would like to play this as a joke, but it's also very seriously her giving us all the answers to what she's doing with this film, uh, which I think goes, you know, into what Campbell is talking about, about how she is constitutionally incapable of letting a symbol sit without giving us everything that we need to uh, parse it. 
It seems like it's driven by an impulse to neaten up everything that could be deemed quote-unquote problematic about the yeah. original Candyman. There's some talk about um, the first Candyman being problematic as such because a lot of the victims are black in the first one. And the film somewhat oversteers in its correction of that, I think, because it's trying very hard not to be misinterpreted in the same way. Yeah. Um, it wants you to be absolutely clear who is in the right and who is in the wrong here. It kind of does away with all the complications that makes the original interesting. Um, like um, a friend, Carl Turner, was saying to me the other day, there's lots of stuff about kind of the fear of miscegenation. And there's this kind of strange eroticism to the Candyman that this kind of gets tossed out the window in this because it doesn't, it doesn't want you feeling kind of... Drawn. Yeah. 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 It just doesn't want to be misunderstood. And I think mm -hmm. it just flattens its um, metaphors in a way. It just, it's just not really interesting to contemplate because it gives you nothing. It's the sort of thing where one can almost picture in the pitch meeting the sort of uh, the take that she was trying to sell, which is definitely revisionist in that uh, the first Candyman, as much as it is about uh, black communities and, and black strife, uh, it centers the white experience of its protagonist and all of the violence is kind of filtered through that. You know, things... Uh, terrible things keep befalling the black people that she is an uh, I believe sociology or maybe anthropology student. She's studying these you know populations that she's so fascinated about and, and purports to be compassionate about. But like so many actual white academics, she really just makes a huge mess of things and kind of ruins the life of everyone she encounters via Candyman. But you know the, there's a clear real world analog to that, and so that's all sort of ironed out in this new one, which you can sort of hear her being like, you know, I want to center black experiences. I want to relieve, you know, uh, black characters in the film from being the site of violence. But then in practice, that number one, I think, drains a lot of like the raw fear out of these kill scenes, uh, which a lot of them are sort of underplayed. Uh, two major scenes play out almost entirely in the background. There's one where Teona Paris is in a car and we sort of see through the car window people's, you know, heads exploding or something like that, throats getting slashed open, I think. And there's another one where we see a woman getting strangled uh, through an extreme wide shot uh, from far away through the window of her apartment. And so we get all this sort of like wry aestheticized violence that I think doesn't really pack the wallop of the original film. And then of course, you know, like Campbell was saying, the subtext is a lot more one-to-one, -one, a lot simpler. What if Candyman was just a way for black people to get vengeance on their white tormentors instead of this sort of reluctant, um, self-defeating, you know, uh, thing. Um, a man stung by a radioactive bee. <laughs> okay, so I mean, if to get into it, the whole his hand turning into uh, a lizard skin or whatever, he he gets all that gross skin stuff. That worked for me. I'm I'm very I much in the yeah. I'm in the bucket for skin stuff. The sort of vague Cronenberg vibes of that I, I enjoy. Especially that it's playing with um, Yaya's body as well. Like it's a film that very much knows he's a very very attractive man, and then it's just like. Well, what if we like kind of just like make him into a bit of a monster as well, and it's just kind of playing with these two things in a fairly interesting way. I, guess. I think it's 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 not for nothing that he is perhaps the the first, or if if not the first, definitely the hottest Candyman. Maybe not <laughs> the first hot Candyman, but that should be the first to show. He's a Candyman who maybe uh, maybe I'm not running away if I if I see him in an alley. Maybe I'm chatting him up. I don't I know. Tony Todd has has an appeal. <laughs> this feels like um, for me a, a classic case of. Um, horror film with ideas, how much you want their metaphor to be subtextual or made text. And 
I, I wonder if this plays into a f- pure presumption on my part that it, it feels like we're being told this story by three different people in the room and we have Nia DaCosta who clearly has her take on Candyman you have Jordan Peele giving us a sort of get out us type social thriller take on this with a lot of humour a lot of humour in this is something that uh, sh- sh- you should know going in um, but then also the exec at Universal who sees the franchise appeal uh, that wants to maybe leave the door open for sequels and more takes on the story and tie back to the original um, can you can you two see those lines playing out here almost competing on screen yes. yeah big time um, I was actually I was chatting with a friend directly after the screening and we walked out and I said uh, so the third act of this film one of the big issues is the third act feels really overstuffed uh, really scrambled and I was saying that I you know in a two-hour film, uh, how could this be? And my friend was telling me that it was actually 91 minutes, but I could I could feel two hours pass during it. And so I think that there's a slight tang of, you know, executive meddling in there. But let's put some scores on Candyman then. And Campbell I'll come to you first. This is In Anticipation, Enjoyment in Retrospect. Uh, in Anticipation, I think a four. Um, as much as sceptical as I am about these kind of sequels where they're like we're just going to pretend that everything else doesn't exist because this is going to be the good one um i was excited by the trailer i love the original candy man so it's like yeah why not um enjoyment three i thought there was some good ideas buried in there um but then it couldn't wait to tell you about them which i found frustrating and then in retrospect two I think it's just continually gone down in my estimations. And I just keep thinking about it's that just kind of open-ended sequel bait ending. And I'm just, uh, yeah. Charles? Uh, As anticipation goes, I'm actually going to say a three. I think um, a lot of the stuff that Monkey Paw Productions, Jordan Peele's production company, that he himself does not direct has historically not really been all that great. I think he, kind of like the Coen brothers, uh, when he's helping out as a scripter, he saves all the good stuff for himself. He, uh, he saves the good stuff for his own production. So I say three on anticipation. Enjoyment, I would say three as well. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, things that sort of isolated I enjoy. A lot of great acting from great actors in there. I love Yaya. I love uh, Tayona Paris, who's wonderful, and uh, Coleman Domingo, who's always great. And then uh, in retrospect, two or maybe even one just the more i talk about it the more the holes widen uh so yeah what a year for coleman domingo right and i I, i'd be interested to see more from nia da costa Uh, i i think we've kind of come hit upon here how there's this conflict at the heart of the film creatively and i think some of the aspects that clearly are her vision some of the better aspects and it'd be interesting to see what she does next but now i guess she's going to be even more handled <laughs> in her next movie because that's a marvel movie uh, the captain marvel sequel so can't oh wait to see God. her creative vision expand in the marvel cinematic universe <laughs> well we'll have to re- reunite the three of us uh, in a couple of years time to see how that goes down but listeners that is Candyman. although it sounds like maybe you should go and revisit the original rather than see this new one at least that's what we think up next we have another new release heavily delayed so charles this is an old film for you talking from the states this is sean durkin's the nest okay a bit of plot synopsis first charismatic entrepreneur rory jude law relocates his family from the united states to a chilly sprawling country house in england with dreams of profiting from booming 1980s london but as his wife Alison, Carrie Coon, and their wayward children struggle to adapt to the complications of this new lifestyle, 
the promise of a lucrative new beginning starts to unravel and the couple begin to face the unwelcome truths lying beneath the surface of their marriage. Now, before we dig in to the film, we were very fortunate to speak with Sean Durkin. Um, so let's have a listen to that interview, kicking off with some of those amazing details in this transatlantic movie, uh, referring, of course, to the fact that Sean Durkin himself is a bit of a transatlantic person himself, having grown up in the UK. Sean Durkin, thank you so much for joining me and chatting about The Nest and Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene and everything in between. I suppose to start with, The Nest, what's so remarkable about it for me is this transatlantic quality it has. At the heart of it, of course, you have this British-American family travelling from America to the UK in the mid-1980s. And I'm aware, of course, that, that you yourself and your family went through a similar journey the opposite direction when you were a kid. And I wondered how much of that experience informed the film. Yeah, definitely, uh, in a major, major way. I mean, um, you know, it started from a place of uh, coming back to England to do Southcliffe, and I hadn't been there in 20 years, basically. Um, and I noticed how uh, when I left England, England and America were very, very different in feel. And when I came back, they felt much closer. And so I think that was my way in. And then just reflecting on that time and um, wanted to make something about it, but also, um, you know, wanted to explore what moving, what major moves do to a family. I mean, I moved a lot as a kid, more than, mm -hmm. more than just that, that time. I mean, I moved every couple of years almost. And, right. and um I guess I hadn't really seen anything about that and, 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 and just wanted to get into, you know, the detail of what, what kind of effects a move can, can have on a family. Yeah, and I suppose at that point when you did live in the UK and moved, how much had, I don't know, British cultural influences informed who you were and what yeah. you were responding to? And at that point, did you know you wanted to tell stories or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was English. I mean, I, I and, 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 I, and, you know, I feel more English than American, mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, and um, it's all that I really knew or remembered. I mean, I moved to England when I was, I think, three, maybe. So... Um, yeah, and I was already, um, I, I was definitely already telling stories in a way, like I, I used to write little stories and illustrate them. Um, I mean, I think about it, by the time I, I was 10, I was starting to pick up my family camcorder and make some like little uh short films if you could call them that with with some friends um and i remember i remember this moment of going over to a friend's house and his, his older brother uh was doing claymation and he mm. showed me this he had these like two clay robots and one shot a laser at another and it and it made it disappear and that was the moment i was like that's probably the moment where I, I, I was like, oh, I want to do this. I want to make films. But I, I don't know that I necessarily could say that at the time. But, um, yeah, so we just started started playing around with sort of in-camera tricks um, to make these little shorts. 
let's move on to talking about casting and performance, because that's definitely something that unites both Martha Marcy May, Marlene, and um, and The Nest. Incredible performances in lead roles and supporting roles. And could you explain and lead us through that process from when you've written a script or you have an image of who they are from the page and then going out and finding the performers who will be on screen performing so well? Yeah. Um, I guess when I'm writing, I try to keep a really blank slate. Um, I, I don't often write with someone in mind. Um, I kind of create the person and the, and the place. Mm-hmm. And then once I find the person or the place, it's like everything that I had imagined goes away. Like I can't remember what it looked like before. So like with the house, for instance, like I have a very detailed imagination, uh, an imagined version of the house, but the second I see the house, it like replaces it in my brain. And, and casting's sort of the same because um, I really like to be open and not get attached to, to ideas of people and really try to find the characters on their own. So, and I really use my casting directors. Like I really, really trust them and, 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 and collaborate with them. So I don't like to make decisions also till they're involved in the conversation. Um, so, so that's often where it starts is a conversation with a casting director. Um, and yeah. And just like what, also about balance. Like I always want to, you know, there's, you want to find the right person for the role, no matter what, whether it's an, it's a name to get the film made or it's, uh, a, you know, an unknown actor having, getting their break, like having a balance of those things is really important to me. Um, in every in everything that I do, I worked in casting for years and just saw all these mm-hmm. great actors, great young actors who just like weren't getting their breaks, and I and I could see that they were, you know, the most talented people coming in the room, and but because they weren't famous, you know, other people were getting roles ahead of them, and and you know now you know twelve thirteen years on from working there, they're, they're like all those people you know have their own TV shows and it's worked worked out fine for them. But, but it was, um, you know, tr- trying, always trying to, to do that, to like have fresh faces and new people. Um, so, so that balance is, is really important. And then in terms of just the individual character, I think I just look for something. It's kind of hard to, to, to put into words cause it's, it's quite instinctual, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's quite like an emotional reaction Um, so I kind of know what I'm looking for, but I couldn't necessarily define it. I just sort of know it when I see it. And, and honestly, usually tell, like if someone's auditioning, I kind of know within 30 seconds, like there's a, there's like a, a feeling that like they just sort of, someone like embodies what I'm imagining and sort of gets it on a level. Um, and I like, that's what happened with Lizzie, with Martha. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, and then someone like casting uh, Jude for the nest. Um, it's it's obviously different because I you know wanted to work with Jude for as long as I've been making movies and and so there's you know there's there's that part of it. But then there's also you know he, him responding to the script and, and and getting it and being excited about it. But then also us meeting and you know that was so much about like um, you know Rory it makes some questionable decisions and is. Mm but he has to have heart like Rory Rory believes he's doing the best thing for his family even if he's not he truly believes that and so 
I, th I needed somebody with heart underneath the surface of every decision. And Jude has such a big heart and so warm that that is, uh, that became a really uh, huge part of him being, being Rory. Absolutely. So you said you, you worked in casting then. So yeah. apart from wanting to see actors succeed and do well, as you mentioned, what else do you take from those years that you still have today? Because as, as I said, I think your films are cast phenomenally well. Yeah, I just I just learned about acting uh, from the sort of nuance of auditions and seeing, you know, when you know, having years of just like, like, so I, I worked at a casting office and I ran the camera for, right. you know, for, for big films, independent films, commercials, um, all sorts of things. So I just saw a wide range of, um, people and types of things and, and just, just got to know really well. Um, I don't know what, what I, what I was drawn to in an actor mm -hmm. and what I was drawn to in performance um, and then, and then also working for some really great directors and I just learned some, I don't know, mannerisms from some people, maybe some like, and, and, but a lot of it was also learning what not to do. Just being in rooms with just awful, just awful directors. And I mean that on a human level who <laughs> are just like <laughs> uninterested in actors on their phones the whole time, you know, things like that. Um, and that was more on the commercial side, but but still, um, so so learned a lot of what not to do as well. Mm. And I've I've read interviews with you before where you said that when once you get to set and you've had that instinctive instinctual response to an actor, you think they'd be perfect for the role. It's then a matter of trust. And you trust mm, that yeah. they will bring what you see in them, and you don't want to crowd them or box them in with direction. Yeah. How does that actually play out? And uh, when you're when you're making a film, what does that mean? Um. It just means... Uh... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. like not sitting down with an actor and telling them all this stuff about who their character is and what they should be doing before they've had time to process it and do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I'll cast them and then they go and do their work and then they can ask me for as much information or as little information as they want. You know, it's mm-hmm. some, some actors like to talk about backstory for months in the lead up and others don't want to have a single conversation about it because they'd rather take what's on the page and, and and then sort of fill in their own things to connect to it and so um yeah that's another thing i learned quite early on is um from from casting and and working closely with actors when i started i had some very generous actors who sort of you know help help me find what worked for me and and also what what worked for them and i think as a director i i find it best to sort of create like create create whatever whatever the best thing is for each actor whatever their own process is sort of respect that and create the environment for them to do their best work in yeah and your films exist in such a psychological space between sort of the way characters act the way that they think they're acting the way they're communicating that they're acting between each other Mm. Um, and so I suppose then something exists between what's written on the page versus what's interpreted by the, the actor and then what you then work out between the two of you yeah totally and, and I think that that's so, so much like the script is so detailed and and so specific so I think they take a lot from it but then also it is about casting the right person in, the, in and I mean say right in the way of like that they get it and they kind of know what it is and I know that they know what it is and so it's starting from a place like so much of it is done by casting the right people with the right chemistry mm. so to tell us about casting Elizabeth then mm-hmm. way back when um for Martha Marcy May Marlene do you remember the moment when you had that instinctual reaction for her for the role yeah totally she she so so I knew I knew that we I wanted to cast someone unknown that was very important um and you know we made the film for a very low budget and so we had those freedoms um and so we just we just cast and cast and cast and and just saw people and um, just felt like kind of waiting for the right person. Um, and then there was just just something in the first take of her first audition. It was that thing. It was like it was a presence and a focus and like the like a look in her eye that I just felt um, you know could feel like an inner strength there too like the character the character is at a point in her life where she is uh broken because of her circumstances but she is not a broken person and Mm -hmm. and so martha sort of like what i was saying about like rory despite what he does has to have heart underneath all Mm -hmm. he does martha i guess is similar in the sense that like 
she was broken by these circumstances she was in, but she had a strength. And so I think that's what it was, and I think that's what Lizzie brought to it. Um, but also just, yeah, it's also just that thing that you sometimes can't, just can't put into words. It's just like you just know that's it. It's... There's, there's something so impossible to describe about those performances where you see somebody for the first time and yeah. you know this is a an actor whatever their name is yeah that, that, that we'll we'll see again and again yeah um and I, I, yeah that, that's definitely one of the performances that people have talked about over the years of such a star making one just at what point do, do you realize that might be what's on the table is that only once it's been seen it's been written about it's on the festival circuits or do you know there's some magic in the air before that i think when we're on set yeah, I mean, I never think about it in terms of like future career or future movies or anything like that. But just like you can kind of feel when some someone's doing something special and and it's going to make an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I never know what that impact's going to be. If it's going to be, you know, hundreds of people or thousands of people responding, or you know, it doesn't. It, it, you never know, but but you you sort of know it feels special you know mm. and i i suppose that the, the big question and this is something as a, as a as a film fan when you see a film and if you attach yourself to a filmmaker and you want to see their next film nine ten years is a long time to wait between mm-hmm. movies and yeah it's a long time to wait make when you want to make one <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> I, I almost pictured you know this is very much projecting onto the film sure, but the way yeah. that rory in, in the nest is very much looking for the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming along. The next big, the next big check. The next big you know, yeah. deal is coming along. But I suppose what has changed in the last ten years, um, as as being the filmmaker in the equation for you, I suppose Martha Mars May Marlene being almost you know very, you know, very kind of sundancey, I guess mm-hmm. American indie, and now this one being this sort of transatlantic co-production with British and Irish mm. uh, producers behind the scenes as well. But what's what's changed, or has anything changed for you? Well, um, I think the industry's changed a bit. I mean, obviously, it's changed. Um, I think I don't know. I mean, it, it so so the actual. So, 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 you know, it's 10 years, obviously, since Martha's release, but the actual time of making, you know, it's, it's not, it's not that long in the sense that like I did Southcliffe, which was Mm -hmm. basically two years. And then, you know, between the time of finishing that and shooting the nest was actually, you know, by the time between starting writing the nest and shooting was four years, you know, so it's, so it's not, you know, and then obviously we finished this and then there was a delay in the release because of the pandemic. So, so it gets stretched out in a different way, but I would say those, you know, sort of four or five years between finishing Southcliffe and shooting the nest, I mean, were, you know, filled with major disappointments and, and I'd say a streak of bad luck mm-hmm. from a filmmaking standpoint. Um, you know, I put a lot into projects that didn't get made. And I'd say, the, the you know, I, I made Martha in a way that was very collaborative and open and, um, you know, instinctual. And then I went into trying to make another film in that way and it was with the wrong people and it was 
not a collaborative open experience. It was, um, it was, it was a film about Janis Joplin and it was something I wanted to make and still hurts me that I'm not going to make it. Uh, because I put, you know, eight years into it. Um, and, but at the end of the day, that sort of, you know, open, honest communication that I require and thrive on was not there. And so in, in a lot of ways, you know, um, I got into the wrong relationship. (laughs) And so I guess, you know, that was one thing. And then there were other things too. There was, you know, a couple of studio films that were very exciting prospects that fell apart for reasons that were far above my head. Um, you know, uh, bigger picture studio issues with projects. And, um, and so in a way coming back to the nest was coming back to the way I made Martha, which was collaborating closely with people I trust like Rose Barnett and Ed Guiney, mm-hmm. um, and Darren Schlesinger and, um, these great producers who sort of understand, you know, we're all on the same page about what we're making. And, um, so yeah, I just, yeah, I guess it's a long way of saying I was sort of trying to do that in, in, in other places where, uh, you know, people don't necessarily operate that way. They operate in a sort of different side of the industry. And, and now you found that in the end, are you set that that's how you know you want to work? Yeah. I mean, it's always how I wanted to work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, it's not, it's not like, you know, every, everyone I work with along the way and the things that didn't happen I thought that was the case I thought that's Mm -hmm. what was happening so nothing's ever changed about how I want to work um you know I only ever take on things that I fully believe in with I fully believe I'm the best person for and that I can make with all my heart you know and and collaborate on with great people um it's just the stuff that gets made is you know that ends up being the case and the stuff that didn't get made it ended up not being the case Mm. But that's as, as as the film fan who saw Martha Mars Maymeline ten eleven years ago, however long it was, and really responded to it, and spent. I mean, I did watch Southcliffe, but I'm a cinema guy. Mm-hmm. The powerful thing about cinema is that as soon as the credits roll on the nest, I'm like, there, I'm right back there, mm. excited about what this Sean <laughs> Durkin guy is doing next. It's so extraordinary Thank how you. cinema you can take. You know, I, I think back to you know people like Whit Stillman or any filmmaker who had like a. 10 year gap or something yeah. in their filmmaking you can still as, as a person in the cinema just collapse time yeah, yeah. <laughs> and forget all of the hard work in between. yeah i agree <laughs> i agree it's it's yeah some might happen to a lot of my favorite directors it just you get these gaps and yeah you're right it's like they don't mean anything once you're in the cinema i guess and it's hard to remember that when you're in it when you're just like trying to make something and just can't get it over the line or another project falls apart and it's like it's not not good for the soul it's not good for <laughs> your health but you know you keep going yeah well i wish i, I wish you nothing but best of luck in the future oh, but while, while i mention credits one sure quirky question to end on i'm a real sucker for for watch for watching through to the end and reading through the thank yous mm. and there's a thank you in the credits here for the estate of leonard nimoy and i wondered this, this might, might have been put in by the producers but so you might not know why but why is that thank you in there <laughs> it's uh i think the 
when they're in the um, in the house, the American house, I think it's the the television in the background is something r- related to that. <laughs> it was some sci-fi show that we, we liked the sound <laughs> of, so I think that's what it was. <laughs> Well, I, got, I had to ask. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it, was very, it piqued my interest. Thank you so much, Sean. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks yeah, so much. Yeah, you too. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Sean Durkin there for talking with us about The Nest. Lots of fascinating stuff there, including the fact that it took 10 years between his debut and his follow-up feature to come out. So, Charles... Tell us about The Nest. This is an old movie for you. This came out a while back in the US. We're finally getting it. It did have some buzz and acclaim. Should we be excited for The Nest? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, so it came out uh, about a year ago, actually, right, on, on The Money. I think it came out early September last year. Uh, you know, but like all great films, it feels <laughs> fresh every time, every time you think about it. Um, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. I think uh, as... An American who's doing a lot of work for a British employer here at Little White Lies, I, I kind of uniquely enjoyed the little um, discrepancies between American understanding and British understanding. Uh, although ours are usually not quite as disastrous as, as what befalls Jude Law and his family. It's usually just me finding out what our family oh. is. <laughs> Sorry. Absolutely. But tell us more about the nest then, um, please. <laughs> Right. So uh, <laughs> Jude Law, uh, he plays a, a sort of uh, not 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 quite oily, but just a, a businessman who seems to be biting off more than he can chew. He in an effort to reestablish social status, he uproots his family, Carrie Coon, and I believe two uh, kids. And he brings them all, as you said, to this big, uh, very sort of ambiently creepy country house out in England that he uses really every penny they've got to buy so that when he has business associates over, they will see uh, what Buddy the Real Estate King from American Beauty calls uh, um, projecting the image of wealth at all times, which is a very important thing uh, when you're when you're in business is that you want people to think you're already successful because that Uh, earns you their confidence and it makes people want to do business with you but he sort of puts the cart before the horse in this respect where it's all it's all flash and no substance he makes all of these really drastic changes to their lives to create the image that they are successful people but he just does not have the business acumen to see it through and so a, a lot of the movie is him making that difficult realization but a lot of it is also commanded by his wife who is slowly waking up to the fact that she has ended up with something of a dud spouse who is really dooming their entire family and, and the resentment that she, that mounts in her and that she eventually has to let out. Mm. Campbell, what do you make of this? And what what is there to latch onto there? Because that sounds almost like a think piece on uh, Thatcherite Britain. But what actually is there to latch onto here in the film, The Nest? I think just really strong character work. Um, Durkin has... Um, already proven that he's really great at handling people just sort of having these quiet realizations as in uh, his previous film Martha Marcy May Marlene um, and it is also sort of compelling to just see to go along with the ride in terms of Jude Lord's character's bullshit like he is a grade A bullshit artist and it's fun in stringing you along with that for a bit you're like oh you get wowed by the big country house and you see all of the spoils of business war i don't really know what i'm saying there but um it's compelling to see that very quick rise and fall and then 
him. So I had this image while I was watching the film of, you know, in um, Wallace and Gromit, The Wrong Trousers, where Gromit's like very quickly putting down train track as mm-hmm. the train goes over it. And that's more or less the thrill of watching the nest, is seeing this guy scrambling to make the web of bullshit he spins actually uh, come true in some one way or another. And it just never comes together for him. So it's just kind of a family constantly on the precipice. Um, even though it is all unfolding in this very deliberate uh, drama. And also, um, Carrie Coon's just really excellent to watch. Um, yeah, I think Sean Durkin is such a... It's, he has such insight into the differences between American and British culture and character. And Jude Law fancies himself almost as a man of the future. He's, he's he, he comes with... He's the prophet of the... Prophet of prophets that could come to Britain's way if they do act more like um, the the people he's worked with in the states, but then he comes straight into a very old world in the UK and has to fake being upwardly mobile. It's all very fascinating and well drawn, and so well cast as well. Um, we should talk a little bit about Carrie Coon. She's somebody who, uh, funnily enough, we just mentioned how Nia Costa is going the Marvel way. And it's funny to talk about Jude Law and Carrie Coon, two actors who are really given the work here. They've both recently, in the last few years, done their Marvel movies. No one remembers that Carrie Coon was in um, Infinity War, very heavily made up. Uh, she, that was, a sure, a check she cashed, and then she went and made some good theatre after that. But Charles, can you talk about the quality she brings and what her um, genius is, if it is there? I think we're we're fast approaching the point where it will be more productive to bring up who has not signed on to or already done a Marvel movie. Uh, but no, she is just wonderful. I think she does something that people like to watch on film, which is she is a woman gradually learning to no longer care about all of the BS in her life and really just living how she pleases. Uh, there's a great scene where <clears throat> her... Uh, sort of animosity starts to come to a head at a dinner. She's out with Jude Law and some of his work guys, and he's trying to, you know, put on a good face, present himself well. I think he talks about going to the theater, and she guffaws at this, and she's like, when was the last time we went to the theater? Uh, She starts, you know, she's smoking cigarettes, she's drinking, she's dancing, she's decided that, you know, if he's going to torpedo their whole life, she's at least going to enjoy herself a little bit. And so you get to see her cut loose in a really empowering way uh which i think people like to see from female characters at this point but she also makes it uh really jagged and human in a way that is not sort of just a a sort of broad you know like i'm getting my life back but it's really her sort of seeing bitterness as a tool to self-empowerment which is i think something we see less of that she really uh remains angry throughout all of this sort of uh liberational behavior that she's doing for her own sake i mean even it's um, sort of a testament to this one that it has this very broad metaphor in the form of a literal dead horse being beaten um, <laughs> that I thought it was uh, nonetheless very graceful. And um, <laughs> it does it does have uh, the maybe the most darkly funny scene involving a horse death that I've seen uh, ever, maybe. Um <laughs> It's just such. Uh, it's such a bizarre. We don't don't want to spoil that that little yeah. bit of physical comedy there with the horse yeah. corpse. <laughs> it's um yeah, it's something that really does have to be seen. Um, just a very uh, quietly outrageous moment in all of that. Mm. Um, but I was very interested in um, again that uh frustration from Carrie Coon and um, there's a frustration that comes from Jude Law's character about that 
desire for social mobility, and a, uh, which feels particularly pointed when it's set amongst Thatcherite Britain. Yeah, uh, time and place, you know, is captured, I think, with really great specificity in the movie. It is uh, the late 80s. And we, I, I think there's just one shot where Durkin communicates that in such a subtle way where the one of the children is listening to the radio and a song that she loves comes on and she quickly rushes to tape it off a tape, which anyone who lived through that time will fondly remember those, those, those times. Yeah, and for me, it is all about those details, details in performance, details in the, the world building, if we would use a term like that. Sounds like I'm borrowing it from Kevin Feige. But... Also, the t- the detailed in the texture and the tones, and this is something about Sean Durkin that maybe we can pick up on when we talk about Martha Marcy May Marlene in a moment, how he uses atmosphere and tension and silence, quiet moments, moments of psychological detail and depth that feel like they're borrowed from horror movies or thrillers when there's nothing really horrifying or thrilling necessarily about this film. It just has this tension and um, atmosphere to it that is so beguiling and involving. And the soundtrack as well is something to go and seek out separately because it just has a wonderful, buzzy, unnerving quality to it. But let's put some scores on the nest before we talk about Martha Marcy May Marlene. Um, Charles, I'll come to you first. Yeah, my uh, my anticipation for this is definitely a four. Uh, I was a big fan of Martha Marcy May Marlene, Durkin's last film, and uh, I really enjoyed the work that he's done producing the films for uh, the company that he and his buddies started called Borderline Films. He and Nicholas Pesci, who did Eyes of My Mother and Piercing, and... Um, Christine, uh, the film about Christine Chavik with Rebecca Hall. Uh, he, he's worked on all those. And so I think he's a guy that's got a great sense of film. For anticipation, uh, Enjoyment 5, I think. Uh, just great acting from wall to wall, great set dressing, uh, really sharp insights about transatlantic differences. And then in retrospect, 5 as well. Really, really strong film. Campbell Um I think I'm about the same, although I didn't have the frame of reference for Sean Durkin's movies. This was actually the first one I watched. I watched this and then Martha Marcy Mayla Marlene. Um, but uh, I had heard really good things about this, so that was at a four. Um, enjoyment out of five, I was really um, involved with this one. Um, I thought it was a really excellent tale of like the, the desire for social mobility and, um, well, the 1980s Britain refusal to accommodate such. Um, and I think in retrospect four, I maybe... Um, <laughs> I think I mentioned the dead horse metaphor, uh, which struck a little bit broadly for me. Um, but yeah, I thought it was really great. Yeah, I, I, I loved this movie. After a few weeks where we've been watching massive blockbuster movies again on the big screen, like Free Guy and Space Jam 2, this is more my Oof. jam, something you can really relax into and be sort of stunned by but also intrigued by and it sticks with you afterwards i'd love to watch it charles you've mentioned christine antonio campos's film i'd love to watch this in double bill with that. yeah, I think yeah. they complement each other very well tonally as well as both being period films about particular moments in women on the verge taking uh extreme measures to to reclaim ownership of their own lives Absolutely. definitely but it's nice that it's uh coming out at this point in the uk when it is phenomenal late summer movie really really good end of summer movie sort of as a tonic after you know like you were saying all the blockbusters mm-hmm. but that is the nest uh, also in cinemas this week listeners let us know what you make of either of those films if you do see them this weekend at the usual channels at lw lies on twitter or truth and movies at tco london.com we're segueing into film club now 
with Sean Durkin once again in the director's chair for Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. This, for me, is one of those want-to-feel-old moments because Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene was one of the film, first films I remember covering when I was a young reviewer coming out of university, so I feel very old. Uh, it's ten years old, uh, so let's have a bit of a recap about what this film is about. After escaping from a dangerous cult and the watchful eye of its charismatic leader, a young woman named Martha tries to reclaim her normal life with her family. But the haunting memories of Martha's past trigger a chilling paranoia and nowhere seems to be safe as the fragile lines between reality and delusion start to blur. Before we have a quick chat about Martha Marty May Marlene, we were so honoured and privileged to speak with Elizabeth Olsen on the 10th anniversary of her breakout debut performance in this film, uh, going all the way back to the very start of her career and those first auditions. So let's have a listen just to our conversation with Elizabeth Olsen. Elizabeth Olsen, thank you so much for joining me to talk about the 10th anniversary of Martha Marty May Marlene. Gosh, 10 years already. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I was thinking about this a lot last year um, because it was 10 years from us making it mm. um, last year, last summer. Um, and, I, and, it was, and I was going back and I was looking at a lot of old photos um, of us on set. It was such a magical time. So it's, um, yeah, it's crazy to um, talk about it 10 years from now, but also I feel like so much life has happened and so mm. for so many people. So it's, um, it's I, I'm grateful that we get to. Absolutely. So let's go back 10 plus years. For so many of us film goers, film viewers, it was our introduction to you. And what a great way to be introduced to you with such a strong performance in a strong film. I remember seeing it on the festival circuit, probably at the London Film Festival later in the year after the Sundance premiere. But what was your first exposure to the project? Was it a script? Was it a, a casting call? What was it? Please let us know how, uh, how you came on board. It was, it was a script that um, they were kind of widely looking at new faces, faces that were already established as well. And I just loved the script. Um, it was undeniably a really incredible, incredibly written story and an interesting character. And at that time in my life, I was um, still in college. I just finished my, um, my third year of conservatory at NYU. And um, so I started auditioning and I was auditioning for everything, even if I didn't you know, like it. And so this was a crazy opportunity to audition for something that I thought was incredible. Um, and I, I went and did the audition and I can't remember if it was, I think it was my, the first time I did the audition, I was moving out of my apartment. Um, and so I brought, I think I brought like a suitcase or something with me or like there's, Sean might remember it better than I, I do, but I was like in transition. And I think he thought it was really crazy that I had like suitcases in the lobby and then like focused for an audition. Um, but that's kind of, I'm like really good at compartmentalizing. So I, I didn't, I didn't think as much of it as he did. Um, but yeah, that's where I was. I was just trying to get my first job. I was turned down from Shakespeare in the park, which was heartbreaking after lots of odd, you know, callbacks and things. And, and then Martha happened. And so Shakespeare in the park, you know, 
was a good thing that it didn't work out. <laughs> I'm sure when you're auditioning for lots of projects, it's not as simple as saying you really wanted to be in this one out of all of them. But what was it about this character, this role, this project that made you really want to, to go for that role? I, I think the thing that um, it's so hard to think about it uh, from from my point of view then, because I, you know, memory is so subjective, mm. but I do remember feeling uh, very connected to the way the story was told about um, what's real and what isn't real and the timeline um, aspect of it, kind of keeping the audience on their toes and this non sequitur storyline was something that really thrilled me as an audience member and as a, as, as an artist. And, um, and I felt like I understood a way to play this woman who is convinced of her reality, regardless of, of anyone else's perspective. Um, I always have had this idea since college. It must've been a teacher that said this at one point, but you are like your, your character's lawyer, or their attorney, like you are going to fight their belief um, to the death. And that's how I felt about her. And um, yeah, so I, I think it was, it was a combination of those, those elements. So I'd like to know about your, your, your college days, because it is interesting. You, you did go to college before pursuing this sort of big screen period of, of your career, you're 2021, maybe at this point, yeah. what did you, was that important to you that you go and have training before you go embark on this career? And what did you learn there that you then used in these films? Yeah, I mean, I, I went to so many conservatories between high school and college. I just love, uh, I love being a student a lot. What, it doesn't even have to be theater or acting. I, I loved being a student generally. So that was something that I actually got a lot of joy from was being a student. And so that's why it was also important to me. Um, but the training and how I even met my agent was all connected to being at the Atlantic Theater Company through NYU at that time. And I, um, I understudied while I was a mm. student. I understudied off Broadway and on Broadway, two bad shows. Um, and I never went on, but I, that's how I met my agent. And so, and that's the same woman I'm with today. And so it was a really important uh, transition for me to have been at the university that I was in at the right time. And yeah, and so and so she kind of, and I, I knew I wanted to go to Russia abroad. And so when I came back from Russia and I finished my third year, that's when the acting school ended and it was all just liberal arts that were left. And I knew I could finish that while I was working and just doing odd semesters here and there. Mm. And so that was really important to me. And I think it was really informative with how I approach my job to this day and also you know this the beginning part of of an education of uh history of you know where do where where do storylines begin you know and in, in storytelling as uh as a you know historical way to look at it and um you get to you get to learn a lot about things that you're not going to self-teach yourself necessarily and so at least I wasn't going to I needed to be a student instead of seek out information on my own 
Yeah, this is getting slightly off track. I'm quite a Russophile. I studied Russian at school. So what did you learn in Russia? Their, their whole sort of school of drama is so different to what we have in Amazing. You know, New York and London and so on. What did you learn over there? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I think what I, what I took with me personally was um, kind of like an ability to realize that no matter what my training is, none of it matters when you're mm. actually um, approaching a character. It's all there, but what, however way you're approaching it, no one's going to care what your process is. They're going to care about the other thing. And so that was because it was a different training than what I'd been doing in college, where I was like kind of militant about that version of training. Um, that's what I learned from it. But what I, what I got to experience of Russian theater mm. was unbelievable. Like it was, there is, um, so much command and confidence in uh, turning a story on its head, even if it's a classic. And they, and there's just, there's just such a, uh, a more fluid way of telling stories. And I feel like it's because storytelling has been so essential and necessary to um, their history for so many years um, and generations that it, it, that storytelling became the voice of the people while they were um, under dictatorships and even with um, being silenced. And, but it, it was like, it was a lifeline for them was storytelling. And so I, I think that's what always drew me to Russian stories because it felt like a history that I didn't come from. And I cared about the importance of that. And, um, and the theater there I had seen was just unbelievable. And all that, the training there is you have to be able to do everything. If you can't do everything, then you're not an actor. You have to be able to sing, dance, fight. Um, it's it was it was uh, remarkable to watch watch a lot of the work I did. And as you say, you can do all the training in the world, but then that doesn't necessarily mean anything when people are watching you. Also, you may do all the training in the world, and then suddenly you're on set, having to act in front of a camera. Yeah. What was that like then? I I'm not necessarily. I don't know about the chronology. Whether Martha Marcy May Marlene was the first set you were on in that amazing year of 2011 where we got so many yeah. films of yours but what was the set for that film like it was well so it was my second set I was on but they overlapped so it oh. all kind of felt like one and they're totally different experiences my first set was Bruce Beresford and his crew of like older gents um and then I moved to Martha with Sean's set and it was all these guys and women who were straight out of um, indie land film school and the oldest person on set I think was 30 um, and it was and everyone cared so much about the story and I and I think one of the reasons why Sean um, wanted me for the part is because I was really awkward on camera I didn't understand lenses I didn't understand um, angles I didn't understand like what looked good on camera and so there's an awkwardness that you, that you can't like, I can't go back to and you can't learn. You're just like, all, you're just um, naive. And I think he liked that because I, I truly just didn't really know what they were getting at, at any moment. I was just able to do my job and it was, you know, you can only have one of those experiences once. And so it just makes me sad thinking about like the purity of that moment. Cause I also didn't understand the film festival circuit. I knew way more about repertory theater than I did about Sundance. 
And so I didn't, I didn't understand where films go that are small. Like I just knew I would watch them, but I didn't know the politics behind getting it to the theater I would watch them in. Um, and so there's so much purity and ignorance that went into making that film for me mm-hmm. that um, it was kind of a blissful moment. And how would you characterize Sean as a filmmaker from your memories of working with him? You said quite a young set, quite different to yeah. other sets, you, the other set you'd been on. But how would you characterize him? Because he was, of course, also starting out as a feature filmmaker at that time as well. Yeah, he um, uh, he's incredibly sensitive and specific. And I think because of his cinematography background, and that was something that he initially thought he wanted to do, he he had all the information that he needed and he knew he knew exactly he just had everything like you could ask him about anything and you felt confident and you felt not intimidated intimidated by you felt cared for i felt like nurtured i felt pushed i felt like i made a friend um but he was he was so sure of how he wanted to envision the story and but yet also flexible and um in the way he and this because of the script that he wrote and because of his own passion and confidence every single person on that crew loved this script and like loved this story and wanted to be there um and so it was it, I, every, I mean, it was it was an incredible group experience. It was like a summer camp. I wish I could go back to every summer. And you mentioned how you know you're there on set, and then you just have to do your job. But you're doing your job alongside some of the great craftsmen of of the era in terms of the actors you were alongside: John Hawkes, Sarah Paulson. What was it like working alongside them? And did you learn anything whilst working alongside them? Um, yes, Sarah was incredibly helpful for me. Um, also as just uh, someone new to this world, she was helpful, but she was helpful. Um, and if I couldn't articulate something that I didn't have the language for, she would help me with that. Um, also watching how she communicated with people, you know, it was just helpful to, to see how you fight for something that like a choice or that something, you know, watching someone actively process analysis and action and goals of a character um, in real time. Whereas I'm coming from a student perspective where you're just like, you know, you're just saying no all the time to yourself or you feel like you should be more quiet that other people know more. And so to figure out that you actually um, should speak up and can speak up, that was important for me. And with John, John's very much like a, he's 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 his character, not like in a weird like methody way where you like have to call him his character name, but he's kind of like in this vibe, and so it totally just freaked me out the whole time. But but um, he is he was a incredible sweetie, and I think the thing that everyone made me feel was just like you know you you're in like just follow your your instincts or doing something and allow them. To continue to do that. I wasn't that self-conscious on that set for whatever reason. I think because of the comfort of the community. Mm. I suppose to, to wrap up, we're going to revisit the film on the podcast, discuss the, this you know, at 10 years remove. 
I, it's quite a, an intense character to inhabit, an intense role to perform, particularly so early in the career in your career. Are there any scenes or moments that linger in your mind even to today? Um, yeah, and I think there's a lot. I think, but there's also a lot of things that we shot that it's more just like the memory of how we shot it and like how it actually felt like they were just capturing moments, especially on the, I mean, and in, in actually in either setting on, on the cult, at the cult and not, um, or at the farm and not at the farm. Um, and so it, like with like, I just remember watching Chris Abbott and Brady Corbet genuinely making up a song and singing it for all of us while we're just sitting there and just like being and not having a clue at what point camera was capturing what. And I just felt like just so lucky in that moment to be with all the people I was around and not have any self-conscious uh, birds on my shoulder or something chirping, you know, you're not doing this, so you should be doing this. It was just, um, Sean set up a really incredible atmosphere to inhabit this space and and be, and I think I think you can see that in the film, and I think you can see that in the nest as well. Um, watching Carrie Coon just like handle those horses, just as simple as that, you are convinced that she's been doing this her whole life, and I don't know. I didn't ask Sean like exactly how what that relationship was, but there's so many moments in that film where you just feel like you're just watching people um, being and it's and it's not boring it's actually capturing and, and telling the story in these in these in-between quiet moments absolutely wonderful i think our, our time is up elizabeth thank you so much for revisiting martha marcine marlene with me i think it's a such a beautiful start to a career and it's great to see the 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 echoes and re-echoes of that performance i think all the way up to one division even uh, thank you so much Thanks for having me. Thank you to Elizabeth Olsen there, not only giving us some context on Martha Marcy May Marlene, but providing another strong review of The Nest. I think everyone's recommending The Nest for this week, but let's talk about Martha Marcy May Marlene. I suppose we've mentioned Marvel all the way through this, and Elizabeth Olsen is one of the cornerstones of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, both in Avengers and WandaVision. But this was her debut when everything was stretching out ahead of her. Um, so, uh, Campbell, I'll come to you first. What do you think of Elizabeth Olsen's performance in uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene? I thought it was magnificent. Um, and sadly, to uh, you're right that in it's really hard not to mention Marvel in this context because it just kind of watching it this in retrospect just made it feel truly like a black hole that just draws everything in because you just kind of sit there thinking oh wow like this is really great I wonder what else she'd be doing if she wasn't contracted to do uh, 20 movies and a TV series um, because it's just a very phenomenal it's a really good and really fractured performance to someone who is both um trying to um sort of i guess instate their own like kind of counter programming in one way or another they felt clearly felt stifled by her family and their point of view but then also is trying to slip away from the programming of the cult that 
she was trapped in and then also feels un- unable to express this and it's just this very um i'm really bad at talking about performances <laughs> but um it's this it's this very um sort of simmering uh anxiety which i found very distressing <laughs> throughout the whole movie and she, it's not it's never op- overplays it it's just very um very keenly yeah, I, felt. I think sean durkin's the polar opposite of a film like Candyman, as we were talking where you know martha Mars may marlene is you know she is going through this post-traumatic stress disorder type experience of trying to reconnect with the real world after being programmed by this cult and abused in many ways and having her own personality chipped away but the film never really makes that fully text no one actually says these things out loud they are like in some ways real people who make those mistakes and are acting on presumptions you know we we have uh, martha's sister who takes her in and thinks she's just taking her in from being disappearing for a couple of years with an abusive boyfriend but never really asks the right questions or reaches out in quite the right way and the way that elizabeth alton's performance does try to you know find that center within the fractured hole is really wonderful to see uh, charles uh, w- what did you make of this i think um it's kind of interesting to imagine that there was probably an executive at marvel who saw this film and realized that she would be right for the scarlet witch because you know as much as um <clears throat> the scale and uh, tone and texture of these marvel movies are are different she's playing a character who is psychologically disturbed who's holding a lot of violence and instability inside of her and i feel like that's something that they sort of wanted the popcorn version of uh for scarlet witch so there's sort of a logic to that even if it's um been tough to see her moving more into blockbusters less into indie films uh but no i mean as far as the film itself uh i really love it for specifically the reason that you name which is that a lot of these really complicated interpersonal dynamics between uh martha between her sister sarah paulson and sarah paulson's husband hugh dancy are left unsaid much in the same way they would be uh there's almost an element of comedy where it's a film about the worst house guest you've ever had uh who turns out to be someone who might still have murder in their heart um but it's about how when someone oversteps these unspoken boundaries in the home you can't really call them out for it without being like all right time to create you know a whole situation and so you see both sarah paulson and hugh dancy trying to give her room in a way that sort of frees them up from having to deal with things that might be difficult, which I think is really, really true to life. I think with the two interviews, we're, we're running out of time, but very quickly, I, I think that Elizabeth Olsen does do good work within the Marvel Universe, and WandaVision gave her quite a good stage for that, even though, as you say, Charles, it is the popcorn version. She hasn't had much chance to act outside of the Marvel movies, but has had a few roles over the years. Is there one, Charles, that we would shout out or recommend? Yeah, the, the big one, I think, if you would like to see more of her, her range, especially, because this is good acting that I think shows an entirely different side, is uh, Ingrid Goes West from 2017 that she did with Aubrey Plaza, which is a uh, more of a dark comedy uh, than anything else, uh, where she plays this really horribly vapid Instagram influencer who Aubrey Plaza becomes obsessed with and sort of tries to do a single white female on her while hanging out in the desert. Um, and you see her, you know, sort of doing bubbliness, which is something that we haven't seen from her in a lot of her work. Uh, but then also below that is something grimmer and darker and, and harder to contend with. Uh, and so it's interesting to see her negotiate all those things in one performance. And uh, although, I'm, you know, it's not my favorite. She did a movie called Wind River, which I don't love. But you see 
what she saw in the script and i think that that shows that she at least has some curiosity about the role she's taking or at least she did in 2017 but that was four years ago and you hope that now that well she is going to be in a couple more marvel movies but off the back of something like wandavision i mean she's still so young and she's made a good couple of films which are for the prestige and now and now a lot of films for the billion dollar gross uh she still has a whole career ahead of her yeah i mean i'm just looking at her uh, IMDb for the foreseeable future, I mean, the next thing she has on the docket is Doctor Strange 2, and the last two things she did were Avengers 3 and 4. Uh, so I don't she have did... a ton of optimism about where we're I headed. I think it's Elizabeth uh, Olsen who also... Did, wasn't she in a TV series for Facebook? And so that's that's one major notch on her CV that non, no one watched, I think. I think that's what she did in between uh, the Avengers Oh, movies. yes, indeed. You're, you're not kidding. It's called Sorry for Your Loss, where I think uh, she's a young widow coping with the unexpected death of her husband. I never even heard about that. I heard about it, and I heard it was really good, but also I have no idea what the Facebook TV channel is. <laughs> yeah, but I think the one thing she does have is this exceptional depth. She does have gravitas and range as well. And unlike some of the stars who have been swallowed up in the great blockbuster um, sausage machine, she's someone who I think I will be wa- will be watching her for another fifty years. Uh, can't wait to see her middle age, her old age performances, and that's all there in Martha Marcy May Marlene. And it was so wonderful to hear from her as well. Listeners, go out and watch this film. Sounds like we recommend The Nest as well. Sean Durkin, another filmmaker who we will gladly wait another decade to see his third film, but hopefully he'll have another one sooner than that let us know what you think of anything we've discussed this week at these real channels at lw lies on twitter truth and movies at tcolondon.com via email charles campbellay thank you so much for joining me this week talking about you know a couple of variable films from <laughs> between between uh, Candyman and the nest next week we've been talking about marvel <laughs> all the way through this episode and we have the the big new one coming out next week shang chi so we'll see how that plays we also have annette the musical with the music by sparks who we discussed a few weeks ago with the documentary the sparks brothers and you might remember when we discussed that film that uh, one of the threads in that documentary was about an unmade sparks film that they almost made with jacques tati the french filmmaker so in film club next week we're going to be talking about a tati classic playtime Listeners, subscribe wherever you pod, and if your podcast player of choice lets you leave reviews, we'd love you to leave one for us there. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.